Welcome to This Is Your Afterlife, conversations with artists and activists about death and life. My name is Dave Marr. I'm a comedian who survived a coma, and now I'm talking to all sorts of people demanding the answers I did not find in that month that I was out. My guest on the podcast this week is Madeline Lane McKinley. She is a scholar a writer, a critic, who has written a book called Comedy Against Work, Utopian Longing in Dystopian Times. So, this is the third in the series of authors who publish through the publisher Common Notions. Uh, Every month, for the last three months, I have featured their most recent book, by I would say by coincidence, but it's it's not coincidental when I'm on the Common Notions website and discovering other books and people through Common Notions. That said, I, I, I wouldn't know the workers at Common Notions from Adam if I saw them on the street. I think their press is, is pretty, I think they're doing pretty good stuff, but this is by no means, this this afterlife interview podcast is by no means sponsored by the uh, the common notions press however I did get to read through this book and it's a fucking cool book what she's trying to do is use the development of comedy both on television and live to show our culture our being mostly American but Western culture's relationship to the all-encompassing behemoth that is work. The, the fact that work is life in so many ways. It's a good book. And we talk a lot about comedy. And if you hear any parts, if you're on the main feed and you're, you're hearing things, it, it'll be clear, but you may hear references to parts of our conversation that are Patreon only. That's just how it goes. I think you get plenty in the main feed episode, but if you want to join the Patreon, go to patreon.com slash Dave Marr. Whether you join at the $5 or the $15 level, you get bonus audio from every conversation. You get the Afterlife Movie Club episodes. You get the after shows where we discuss the episodes. If you join at the $15 level, you're a Pigeon Level subscriber, and I say your name. Susie Carroll, Fred Fidoa, Kurt Chang, Katie Llewellyn, Debo. Shuba Singh, John Lee. I think I think that's it. Yeah, what did what else did I want to say? I wanted to say that at the end of this conversation, it's it's self-serving. I'll I'll say that. I want to apologize for that, but I want to apologize for it minimally. I've I've been trying to apologize less for stuff. I've been trying to it's it's hate and self-deprecate. Those are the things I'm trying to do less, especially on social media. Um, they, they don't get me the rewards I think they're going to get me and they especially don't make me feel good. So what's the fucking use of them, right? I feel the need to apologize for a long intro to a podcast, but I do a long intro. You know, I, I record these and then edit them. If you're hearing this, it means I've left it in, in the edit. I'm doing that for a reason. I'm going to, I'm going to make a commitment to you, the listener right now, that I'm not going to apologize for the length of an episode ever again. I trust you to know what you like, know what you want to listen to. I trust me to put together a thing that hangs together well, that you will like. I hope you trust me as well. And that's how it goes. I'm I'm really grateful for, th- for this show, to be honest. I, that was my feeling when I got off the 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 call with Madeline. It was just, I, I'm just so grateful that this experience, you know, I'm in a reflective time. This is the anniversary of me being in the coma uh, in, in October and November. So it, it's, it's eight years, you know, now like November I'm, I'm recording this in the wee hours of when it's released Tuesday, November 15th. November 17th is when I woke up from the coma. So we're still in that window of, of unconsciousness. Um, 
in terms of the anniversary. But so I'm prone to reflection and I just want to reflect back to myself and maybe to you the idea, the the idea and the experience that I was in this fucking awful, nearly life-ending medical trauma have through developing live shows then transformed one of them into this podcast, which then it's, if you've listened enough times, you know that it goes beyond the afterlife stuff. I'm just not, I'm not just interested in having people tell me whether they think there's going to be streets of gold or not. You know that you're ultimately not just interested in that, I think. And I think it's fucking rad that we can talk about communism, culture, the, the the evolution of comedy, that you can hear me grapple with the ways to be a comedian now. You know, if you've heard some of the solo episodes, you know that I'm grappling with performing in a way that that honors the protections I've been honoring COVID-wise, that asserts my my worth because the lack of COVID protections really has me feeling worthless. So you know that I'm going through some shit, you know, when it comes to I'm I'm just, just, just starting work on my third one-man show now. It's basically a blank slate. And what you're hearing is the beginning of the development of that. And I'm grateful to be able to document that because I think creative process is very interesting. And I'm just grateful that this show gets to encompass so much more than it appears like it would. I'm genuinely just, yeah, thank you for listening. And you should check out Madeline's book. You should check out Blind Field Journal, the online culture journal that she runs with last month's Common Notions guest, Joanna Isaacson. And you should also check her out on Twitter. I'll put all those links in the show notes. In terms of the Patreon, those supports like writing the reviews in the podcast apps, I'm an independent artist. This is an independent show. I have put off saying that this show doesn't have ads and never will because I've had this vague idea in my mind that I'll, if I don't commit to that, maybe someone will knock on the door and say, hey, we're, we'd love to fucking advertise our shampoo and conditioner on your Afterlife podcast, you know? But fuck that. I refuse to apologize for the vagaries and the ups and downs and flow of this show because I can put it together the way that I want if you like that and it is the way that you want, go to the Patreon. So yeah, I am comfortable right now saying this show is not supported by ads and never will be supported by you. So thank you. And here is my conversation with Madeline Lane McKinley. I grab your whip and take it back to Chi-Town. When I'm in Chi-Town, I treat it like it's Paint your hell. What is a custom... Customized hell. to you version of hell. Like childbirth. <laughs> okay. Okay. Like forcible pregnancy childbirth that like doesn't end. And maybe like, maybe there's like Joe Rogan, like blasting in that room too. Like just for an extra layer <laughs> of like hellishness. Yeah. But um, yeah, childbirth was, horrible I, and i heard mine was pretty went pretty well but just oh my god are there aspects of it that <laughs> like there's the like i can imagine right but mm-hmm. only imagine and i'm wondering if there are unpublicized slept on hellish aspects of childbirth that came as surprises yeah Well, definitely everyone talks about the birth itself, right? Like what's going to happen during like, what's what's usually like 
just a few minutes of mm-hmm. this whole ordeal, right? Okay, yeah. So everyone kind of like really pumps up that moment, which also seems kind of like phallic. It's like all around, you know, the phallic <laughs> ejaculatory okay. kind okay. of moment. <laughs> but, you know, that's so really that, funny. Yeah. That part I was like, bizarrely just felt really relieving. Like it was mm. not, I mean, it was horrible, but like something was happening and it was, there was movement and that mm-hmm. actually felt really better than I thought it was going to be. But then I felt really betrayed. I didn't have any friends who had kids. I had one friend who was great. I didn't feel betrayed by her, but I just felt betrayed by like the culture when I realized how horrible the like three to four weeks after birth are. Okay. Okay. Real bad. For instance, I'm fine to be on a podcast saying this. It took me almost three weeks to poop. Okay. Because you were just constipated. Because what happens is like, there's all this space suddenly freed up in your body and like your organs have been all cramped up right then the baby's gone and those organs just go like like they just spread out so it felt like your intestines just got longer or something yeah and i actually gained weight for the first week after because i like couldn't poop isn't that crazy that is and crazy. I found, i've talked to like a number of people and they're like yeah that was really surprising afterward <laughs> for them too, and I know you that, mean, not for yeah, you yeah yeah because no they were like yeah that it. was fucked up you told us about that and we you're super weird for that now i do always warn people who are pregnant that that might happen to them especially if they have to go on some opiates which they mm-hmm. did because of complications from the birth which you know they constipate you too so Okay. Okay. It's just like it was horrible. And I know I'm talking about constipation a lot, but it was like no, was no, no, really no. Intense. It's totally it okay. I mean, we and spent you have so much... this sense, you know, that it's going to be like your light, lightening yeah, your load, and it's going right. to just feel so great, and it doesn't, and and you don't know when that's going to end. And so was there, and uh, you know, I'm on, I'm, I'm asking if every question is comes with a, a question of consent as well. So I'm available for <laughs> n- for not interested in answering that as a response to any question. But was there a big shit that you took that was like Yeah. Memorable? I remember it very well. <laughs> really? Yes. <laughs> yes. Totally. I had like some friends over and they were watching a movie and like holding the baby and I like disappeared for like an hour. <laughs> it came out Whoa. of the bathroom being like, wow. I just took a really big poop and I like am starting to feel a little bit better, you know, but um, that's amazing, you know, and I don't know if it's like, I think it was longer for me because of being on the opiates, but Mm, I do know people, people often take a few days at least. That was definitely the longest I've ever gone without pooping. You don't really think yeah. about how horrible that would be until it happens. Well, it sounds insane. Know? It sounds like <laughs> it's really crazy. M- murderous. Yeah. It's like, uh, yeah. I thought you were going to say that the buildup to the birth was the hellish part. That, that, but that's so interesting. I mean, I imagine yeah. there are many hellish parts, but that, that yeah, the yeah. after moments, does it feel like the betrayal, the, the feeling of, oh, this is yeah. going to be easier and it's not? Yeah, see, I don't know. Like, I, I never did it a second time, and I won't. So sure. I'm like, maybe it would be because I just have that, like, bodily knowledge. It would be better. Mm. Um, But yeah, the betrayal was really, like, psychologically damaging. <laughs> and I just had really, really bad postpartum depression. Like, I, mm. I was, like, just crying all the time. Like, just couldn't stop crying. And, you know, it yeah. was... It was uh it was intense and I just didn't feel prepared for that and um yeah, it's like the overall culture is so much about like the fetus and like the pregnancy itself mm-hmm. and then just what happens like right after that. Yeah. There's no conversation about that and uh, I find that really frustrating. So I always try to like yeah, I always try to talk about that. <laughs> when would it I be can. would it be more hellish or less hellish? <laughs> for the topic 
that Joe Rogan's discussing to be that postpartum. <laughs> oh, that would be great if he was like, you know, postpartum doesn't exist. Like, okay, know, okay, bullshit like that, right? Like, yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> you just need to like drink this particular type of, I don't know. What weird people don't understand and... is that if you use nootropics <laughs> to, yes, thank you. <laughs> you, you know, yeah, like, uh, or comparing, I don't listen to Joe Rogan, but but comparing it to some sort of male experience. It's like it's it's a right, lot like yeah. when you're crafting a set. When I go to the comedy store, it feels yes, like getting yes. off stage is that postpartum <laughs> moment, you know? Right. Yes. Yes. No, that would be truly hellish. Thank you for elaborating that. <laughs> of course. <laughs> What do you hope happens when you die? I don't think anything is going to happen to me, you know? So I think it would just be that like everyone around me who I loved was, you know, okay. And that it didn't just totally fuck everybody up that I died. You know, um, I think that's what I would hope the most is just that it felt um, um, peaceful to those around me. Mm-hmm. So, so they can. Does that involve the like it. circumstances of your death then? Yes. Yes. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I've had a number of people, I think, still the majority of the deaths in my life have been surprise deaths. Um, mm. And like I've said, suicide is one that my friend group has been kind of destroyed a few times by suicides, um, different friend groups, but, and then my, that actually happened in my family too. Um, and yeah, I think that's what I really care about. Like, is just that people just so that it doesn't ruin a bunch of people's lives or, you know, like that, that I can die in some, with some, some dignity and that it um, doesn't burden other people. Yeah. I assume you think about your partner and your kid a lot in those that in terms of the people yeah. whose lives you don't want to ruin those, I imagine yeah. would be near the top of the list. Yeah, they're the top. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Can safely say it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But is there is there um are there specific things that you felt like you've lived through that you would want to be different for them where it's like oh, you know, if you're writing a letter, oh, you might be tempted to do this, but don't you know, don't do that or don't be afraid when this happens, that kind of thing. <sighs> Yeah, I don't know what I would say, but I mean, I think the main thing that I'd want for them is to not, like, blame themselves or blame each other, you know, um, and it, you know, I've experienced that with friends who killed themselves and, and with my stepfather. Um, but there's also just like, you know, so my partner, um, he's like a cyclist and mm. sometimes like actually yesterday he's like, I'll be home by two. And then I don't hear it from him at two. And, um, it's like three and I'm starting to worry. Mm, and then at like three Oh five, he sends me a text message and it's because he was out of cell reception and he like got lost. And you know, there's always a good excuse, but you know, for that hour, I have a really hard time not like assuming, <laughs> assuming yeah. he's dead. Yeah, totally. <laughs> and that happens like pretty often, I would say, um, because he's, on these bike rides. Um, and I do have to go through a thing where, I, you know, it's like, 
don't blame yourself for like letting him go on that bike ride or, you know, of course he's going to go on that bike ride, but your mind can get really creative with grief about like how to make it your fault. (laughs) So I think that's the main thing I would, I would want though. I don't, I know. I don't know how I would die in these circumstances. You know, I'd prefer to die, you know, old or like if I'm dying young to be doing it like in a, for a, revolutionary cause or something sure, you know, but sure um but in either case i just i wouldn't want anyone to take it out on themselves so. yeah and that's is, like my main regret is blaming myself and other people for for um some of those like surprise deaths when they've happened or just you know it's just like your tail spinning and you're trying to make sense of what happened and just can't and um, it's really easy to like latch on to. Yeah. Blame. Blaming other people is a heavy <laughs> one there. Yeah. To, yeah. I mean, that's, I, I don't think I, I don't think I've been in that situation, but I can imagine, I mean, I can certainly imagine getting there, but it's, I mean, it's a, cause there's a, the, when it's, when you're blaming yourself as horrible as it may be, it's, the idea that you mm-hmm. can unlearn it or that it's within your control, you know, or even though it shouldn't right. be this way, if you say terrible things to yourself in your mind, you can like take them back or something. But if you're not yeah. able, to, if you're doing that with a another with person, else. you know, it's like, oof. it's horrible. And often you blame other people because that's the only relief you can get from blaming yourself, right? Like, mm. you know, I, I don't think people blame other people in those situations without just kind of over getting oversaturated with self-blame, you know? Sure. And at least that's how I try to come at it compassionately. I've been on both ends of that and, you know, you know, I like, I kind of understand how that, how that's really easy to slip into. And yeah, it's, that would be something I'd want to avoid in my death. (laughs) It's just any, just finding, finding ways to just clean, clean the slate for my loved ones, you know, just let them move on and have peace. Clean the slate is interesting though. Yeah. I guess that even as I said, that, I was like, is this difficult. the right metaphor? <laughs> yeah, just move <laughs> on. Just be done with it. <laughs> <laughs> you know, but I mean, it's easier even some deaths are, you know, they're really sad, but it's, it's definitely easier if, if there's been some time to prepare and process with the person ahead of time. And yeah, no, for sure. You know, I mean, it can be, it can be beautiful even. It can be. Yeah. Yeah. So I don't know, but it's, it's also kind of a selfish thing, you know, people coming to like somebody's dying, like they're always wanting to like, you know, stop feeling guilty about something or confess. You know, have you noticed this too? Wait, who who's wanting to stop feeling guilty about something? Like other people, they're like wanting to go and like make things right with the dying person. It's like oh, that person's dying, you know. Like yes, a hundred percent. They don't owe that to you. I yeah. mean, that's one of the big. Uh, yeah, I think it has like kind of influenced my whole life aspects of being in a recovery program is Mm -hmm. the idea of doing amends being you do these amends and then the end of the step where they say amends is accept when to do so would injure them or others so it's like Mm. if you're and 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 there are a lot of ways that you confessing something to someone can injure them you know uh yeah yeah and and so it's really just excruciatingly scraping your motivations for like any element of self-indulgence or, or anything. And, and that works with, you know, I remember being in high school, like needing to confess my love to, to specific girls because it felt like that's what they did in movies. And all of that was Mm -hmm. the same kind of hostage taking as well, you know? Um, Yeah. Yeah. So for sure there should be a, there should be a societal role, like a kind of a witch or a gremlin or something that can 
people can go yes. to instead of the dying person <laughs> and you can confess mm. all that shit to them and they'll just take in the darkness and not have to burden yeah. whoever's on their deathbed with it. Yeah. Yeah, that would be nice. It's, you know, apologizing is a similar. Th- I mean, I, I recently, um, it's not that recently, but there was somebody who I wanted to make things right with, you know, and it's mm-hmm. like, you have to kind of think through how to do that. It's a very gentle dance um, of how much am I doing this to like make myself feel better about the situation and how important is this to them that they need this apology or (laughs) yeah but also having been apologized to that has meant a lot to me even if it was coming from like a complicated place for the other person so I think that's also the sad thing about that death confession thing is just there's so much left unsaid you know why are people waiting until people are on their deathbeds to say these things? Right, 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 <laughs> you know, right. It's too late then, you know, that's more the point. What's your coma? And the backstory okay. here is that I was in a coma for a month, eight years ago. After that, got sober change direction in comedy lots of things changed um it's just a moment of transformation where before you're one version of yourself after you're another can be crazy and grandiose or it can be split second and mundane um i think all of us have multiple of these moments but i'm just curious about what what floats to mind when i ask you what's your coma it's tempting to be like there's this moment moment in my childhood where everything turned to shit <laughs> but okay. trying not to think of it that that definitely is like the first major paradigm shift for me was just having this like horrible horrible stepdad monster um like he was like abusive to me um in a bunch of ways um and then just stopped and then converted to Catholicism and it was wild. Um, Was that as traumatic as the abuse in a way? I, I think so. I think the, the, the silence, we basically just didn't talk after that. And then he died about 10 years later. Um, And we, I probably on one hand the conversations we had after that but we lived in the same house um i mean beyond the like are you ready to go you know that yeah yeah thing, yeah you know? yeah there were things sure. i'm not, not saying it wasn't like yeah but the that was like really intensely damaging and it's also you know yeah that was a it was a continuation of the abuse, the abuse had transformed into silence, but it was mm. just this like becoming invisible. Um, that was, yeah, there had just been this point where we just had this kind of silent agreement that he was going to leave me alone if I didn't say anything, you know? Oof. And um, yeah, I think that like really profoundly, um, shaped me (laughs) and like how I, you know, I think maybe that has, maybe that's resonating having read my book, you know, some of the things that I'm interested in. Um, Like one of the things that, well, one of the things you were saying was like, it's not all about work. There's some stuff about like the alt-right and me too and stuff like that. And I agree. That's not, it's not like explicitly about work, but a lot of what I'm talking about with work is actually about power right and so um mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and so that in that sense i think um looking at both of those um kind of facets of comedy makes sense in the project to me it's like you know a lot of the time yeah like thinking about like, like 
um, how work is a form of oppression or um, has the false power, false, false promise of empowerment, right? Like mm-hmm. power is really like at play in all of these, all of these moments too. So, so you think that um, that moment with your stepdad or, you know, extended moment ga- just attuned you to power dynamics in that way? I think so. Yeah. Or did and it also, have something oh, specific like, to say about power? Hmm. Yeah, there's a relationship with power and silence, you know, and I think Mm. writing is really, really important to me, you know, it's like, that was during that time, I would be able to write, right. And that was, I would be, I would be writing not to be read. In fact, like Mm -hmm. hoping not to be read, right. But the actual act of writing um, was profoundly healing. So I think that I, that's probably where I learned that learned that um, that I could go to writing to to heal and to sort things out. Um, yeah, yeah, but like the deprivation of language. Yeah, like when you were asking me about my hell, the other thing I thought of was like I have a nightmare, which I think is like clearly related to all these things. But this nightmare is different circumstances or whatever, but that I can't, uh, I need to say something and I can't, or I need to Mm. scream and I can't. Mm. My partner has similar ones where he like can't move. Like he needs to move, but he can't move. Mm -hmm. Mine are almost always about, um, yeah, needing to say something that I can't say. And like this feeling in my throat being like, like, you know, and it's also like the, the little mermaid is like the most dystopian, movie ever mm. <laughs> about her like giving up her voice I mean, to me and just like oh God, this is like such a fucked up movie that i watched a whole bunch like you know, in that time too yeah you know? so i don't know there was something about that that i think it awakened a lot of really i guess i said i thought it was a really horrible fucked up thing that made my life worse and it definitely did but i think it awakened some of the things I want to hold on to as an adult and like my, like when I teach writing, that's also what I keep in mind is like sometimes my students, their like lives will just totally like explode because suddenly they're writing. They're like feeling like they can write. (laughs) That's not the case for everyone, but it's just, um, it can be such a great weapon. Um, or form of survival or, or anything like it just really kept me afloat during the, that very dark period um, to be able to write. At that time, were you writing directly at the traumatic stuff or was it more diversions? That's really interesting. That's such a good question. I, I wrote before that and I had a journal and stuff like that, but then there was a period where I stopped writing about what was going on on because Mm -hmm. i was trying to escape what was going on and i think you know this is also like when i started watching lots of comedy and like (laughs) like had all these vhs tapes of conan segments and like just would go into those and um yeah just really geeking out on comedy because comedy just really made me feel better you know and um so i think i was going at it more with an escapist attitude most of the time but i i do know that there were periods where i just i really needed to just write what was going on and i would do that you know yeah but it wasn't like every day it wasn't my daily practice of writing sure sure yeah i just i mean there's so much there there's there's so many different directions my brain darts thinking about that stuff and and it's yeah, it's function for you. The idea of, I mean, there's even this idea in comedy and other art too, that like, you know, the people making the, there's almost a privilege and emotional or psychological privilege to people who are making like really extreme art or, or really like, trauma forward art in some ways where it's like Mm -hmm. you know in i mean you talk about mom's mabley 
in the book. Yeah. And mom's maybe being this like uh foundational comedic character and the absolute fucking devastation in her oh, life. Her life, yeah. Yeah. It's like the saddest life story I think in my whole book, you know, it's just horrific, which just as a child, what she dealt with, right? Right. Um, yeah. Giving birth at what, 11 and 14 or something like that. Yeah. It's, mm-hmm. and, and the idea that, like, oh, well, if anyone's going to do the sort of one person show uh, trauma porn story style, Moms Mabley would be primed to yeah. do that. And yet she doesn't. Like, she goes in a totally different direction. So it makes a lot of sense that you would, that you would not right straight at it that you would mm-hmm. go toward comedy in some ways um yeah that that just um but then as a person who is both i think earlier in my life started with that kind of privilege to think of art as this pure expression uh, you know, all of the most damaging capitalistic ideas you talk about in the book where where comedy and art is about truth, is about a very narrow definition of authenticity, um, mm-hmm. y- y- you know, allowing me to uh, be as pretentious as I can be mm-hmm. th- and then and and not being one of the like, sort of survival funny people where it's like, oh man, this person is just so funny because everything around them is crashing down, you know? Mm. Um, and then later in my life, uh, you know, being saddled with disability and near death shit and, and, and yet still wanting to kind of write and perform directly at that stuff. I don't know how to make sense of that for myself to be like, man, I feel like my, and I realize we're talking more about me than you. No, no, no. I'm so, I'm so interested in this. Yeah. But like, but the, the idea that I, I feel like the narrative of that would be, oh, now I'm freed to just make, um, silly, carefree comedy and yet i feel in some ways more morbid and mission driven and perfectionistic about being fucking righteous than ever (laughs) in some ways and and so i don't know i don't know quite how to make sense of that but certainly the stuff that you're talking about well yeah go ahead i think it's about power you know like like okay this is something I've been thinking about ever since I watched, um, like last year, Tim Heidecker's like you saw the the fake Joe Rogan. Oh, okay. The I saw part right. of it. At a certain point, I kind of feel like I get the joke, and I don't need to go through the whole thing. <laughs> but yes, I did. I like really went into it. I was like, I'm gonna watch this on the loop. I'm gonna do it. Whoa, because it was like it really one interesting. A- it was one hour of him doing a fake Joe Rogan thing, but on repeat for like 12 yeah. hours, right? It, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Okay. I thought it was brilliant. And, you know, I, it was one of the things that I really, the bear and that are, those are two things I really wish I could put into my book <laughs> retroactively. Really? Um, for different reasons. But that I thought was like, and I'd be happy to talk about the bear, but like, the Tim Heidecker trolling of Joe Rogan, the directionality of that seemed so perfect because the trap that Joe Rogan puts us in is what like Cameron Esposito does. And I love her uh, special rape jokes. I think Mm -hmm. it's brilliant. It's a great, like she makes fun of (laughs) like different, um, you know, reactions within the comedy world i think very effectively mm-hmm. so but the uh, she's doing it from this place of authenticity right speaking as a survivor on behalf of survivors and it's super beautiful to watch her take down all this bullshit right and, and feel a part of that solidarity however i think that tim heidecker's 
um, <laughs> tactic is way better at just like brutalizing these Joe Rogan types. Like the, these trolls need to be trolled, right? Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. The sat his satirization of their bullshit is like probably going to get us a lot further because if you play the authenticity card, like Cameron Esposito does, it only gets you so far. It gets you the solidarity with survivors, but you're also kind of playing into, you know, this like weepy snowflake trope that Joe Rogan already has you as right. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And, um, and that's definitely different for like, you know, some of the male comedians I talk about in the authenticity chapter, they're using authenticity in a different way as a different strategy of representation. But um, I've just been thinking a lot about that trap. It was like, you can like give you, this is a trap a lot of people were in with me too. It's just like, you can pour out your survivor story and like, mm-hmm, tell us all of your trauma mm-hmm. and all this stuff. And then there's a certain point where everyone's just completely desensitized to it. Yeah. And I wrote a couple of pieces like that. In fact, you know, one, I was like a little bit like pressured to write and I pressured by myself and others to write yeah. and I don't regret it, but I poured my soul into it. And, and um, now I just feel like there's this like gaping wound out there to be read, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and it makes me feel uncomfortable sometimes. I don't regret it. Like I said, but I just, you know, the, this Tim Heidecker move seems like something I want to think more about with with um, some of the enemies in the comedy world. You know, it, you have to you have to check it out again and, and tell me what you think. I mean, I, yeah, now I, I will. I found it fascinating. Sure. Yeah, yeah. I mean, <laughs> you're well, but it's interesting, too, because I'm talking about being kind of stuck in the authenticity mode. And you're like, yeah, yeah, exactly. The exact opposite of what you're doing is actually the more powerful comedy. And I'm like, well, it's not the case for you, right? That's not the case for you. I think it is. I think, I think gender Mm. and comedy is just, (laughs) it just rules all in so many horrible ways. But like what you're allowed to do is like, you can, you can do like, I mean, Mark Maron is like vulnerable and funny. He can like, he can balance those things in a way that, you know, I want for Cameron Esposito, for instance, or, mm-hmm. you know, any of these other people who are who are doing the kind of the same authentic moves and stuff like that about their right. pro- trauma. I don't think they have access to that mm. in the same way. Because, I mean, and I like Mark Mar- I think I spent a lot of time hating Mark Marin, and I really like this last few chapters of his career. Mm. And I really like how he's like leaning into his vulnerability and reflecting and and he's so self-critical i like those things i'm critical of him still but like i don't think that women in comedy or queers in comedy get access to that as easily don't you think a hundred percent although i think it's really interesting that you say gender rules comedy because my mind immediately goes to race i think race is at least at least gets more press as ruling comedy but I think, I mean, if you take Richard Pryor as the example, he certainly is yes. given the license to be vulnerable in this capital V societally defined vulnerable way. Although I would add that he Absolutely. was genuinely vulnerable in my, you know, reading of him. Yeah, I mean, I write about him in that chapter and I agree. I don't, I don't I'm like, yeah, race is also a whole they don't cancel each other out. They're both like exactly, these huge problems exactly, lingering over exactly, comedy, right? Right, but, right, right. We're not but, like prior never. Anything. Yeah, but prior prior like did not like being called authentic. Like, like he did not like that. Is that true though? Because Ev- I everybody called him authentic. Because like, I read this concept. Yeah, I read that, and I thought that was really interesting. But I don't remember, and this might have been my skimming. I don't remember his reaction to being called authentic. Is that true that he, he would was shirk it off? He he never called himself that, and he was always his thing was like not being a phony. He was always freaked out that he was being a phony. Yes, while other yes. people were calling him authentic, so he mm. felt really like uncomfortable with that. That and that was something that was very much being projected onto him. And so that's my kind of argument about 
the authenticity of Richard Pryor is like, I agree. I think it is some of the most like genuine, like real raw, like there's all these adjectives, right? <laughs> like comedy, yeah. like yeah. amazing. And yeah, he's fucked up and he's like letting you judge him too in moments that are oh, for sure. really beautiful too, you know? But the particular kind of like mantle of authenticity at least my argument is that's a very like that's that's coming from the kind of white supremacy in comedy and that that's never necessarily what he was trying to be Mm -hmm. Um, it's more what the comedy world made him into and especially after he's died he's caught that's that is the word used to describe his comedy yeah yeah by some of these brave comedians now right 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 but so wait so where does this leave where where does this leave me in terms of actionable your authenticity in writing my well, I writing think, my next show? Uh, I think that you can still I think I think you can go the route that like I'm saying like Marin or Scathard, like there's a vulnerability you have access to that's beautiful. There's lots of men in different yeah. facets of comedy that can play that play that vulnerability i don't know and, I think, I and think you that's think something you can do so you think male vulnerability can cut in the same way that satire can cut yes and in a way i think it's very that good. that non-male vulnerability cannot cut yeah i think in other words that there need sense. to be like in the kind of like masculine archetypes of comedy right now there need to be enough examples of like actual brave comedy <laughs> you know? mm-hmm, mm-hmm, um mm-hmm. and um that that would be the responsibility that's that's what i'm telling you you must do with your <laughs> <laughs> yes that's oh my god this is your assignment <laughs> people who've listened enough know how desperately i just need fucking marching orders or some definitive answer <laughs> and i'm so grateful no, but you know what i'm saying oh i do no for sure you know what I'm saying? I think it's really powerful. I just, I get concerned about femme and queer folks and comedy. I, I want them to be vulnerable if they want to be vulnerable, but I think it's also like, um, a strategy that, that has limits. And I'm just relating to that as a writer, you know, no, it's like, uh, you know, yeah. but, um, and, and the, it sucks. It, it shouldn't be this way, but that's, that's the case. Well, that's interesting. You know? So it feels like, I mean, I would imagine, given that you spent an entire book writing the book <laughs> and you and your trauma story was, it sounds like one or two articles that you enjoyed this book, the book, the writing about comedy more than just the, you know, mm. personal revelation. Yeah. And that that also relates to the fact that in your own life, you feel less power from the revealing detail stuff and more power Mm. in the critical realm. Yeah. I think, I think that that's what I feel most comfortable doing and most powerful doing. Um, I knew we'd fucking get back to your shit, dude. I knew if I went, I knew if I went hard enough (laughs) and went through mine, we could get back to you. Yeah. Totally. Yeah. No, that makes sense. I mean, it's beautiful comedy. It's my Marie. We haven't talked about Blob. Okay. Yeah. Great. great this great. is what Let, I'm saying, though. Yeah. Le- okay. Well, let's talk about Blob. I. I mean, you know, the show is is not <laughs> is, is not uh purely purely analyze the work that brought me to you and you to me but blob yeah. is very compelling so fucking let's talk about blob give me well i mean did you ever see maria bamford do that live but, yeah i mean no. i know she did an old i think it was old baby was the one did she do she it okay that was what yeah. i was trying to remember i don't remember it i remember an uh i remember her inviting people up in Mm-hmm. The most recent one, what weakness is the brand, I think. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. But I don't remember the blob bit in Old Baby. So let's so describe well, Blob. It might then. be blurring in Blob 
you know, blob like fashion, they might the specials blur, but yes. Um, but this is what this is what um I mean, I don't think there's any more perfect comedian than Maria Bamford, honestly. Um mm-hmm. I'll just like I think I show the <laughs> show my hand in the book quite a bit, but she's my favorite. And that experience is like like she's so interesting we're talking about she doesn't have her survival stories but just the the way she inhabits her vulnerability is really beautiful and i they don't understand it she's a magician because she doesn't do she doesn't get cornered into the authentic survivor mm-hmm. story mm-hmm. a la cameron esposito every moment that like her um mental health stuff at least for me like she could do the thing that I saw like Margaret Cho like I went through a brief period of being like I love you Margaret Cho but like I'm not gonna like watch your comedy because they feel like TED talks like motivational sure 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 sure. (laughs) you know and like Maria Bamford like always comes to the precipice of that and then like bounces away from and like does like a squirrel impression or something (laughs) like that and I just love that about how she she like she knows all these trappings like that she could get sucked into and she's just deflecting them all the time. Yeah. Find that really interesting. Without deflecting depth or meaning. Yes. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Just like deflecting the, deflecting the bullshit. Right. So that you can have that space to go deep. Right. So now talk about blob. Well, that was the, that experience was, you know, the end of that show just, um, being and then i don't know i don't know if i can even describe it just being brought into this well, you literally write about entity it. i know <laughs> i know i the bit the bit brought into this entity you know she's describing yes. a childhood game right 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 called called blob where you'll go yeah and you say like one big blob one bit and you have to join to each other and she's like and it's a shit game and we hate it yeah (laughs) we're gonna do it we're gonna hold on to each other hands it's awkward and horrible but we're gonna keep doing it Mm -hmm. and she talks through it and it's like you feel it's like i'm holding this stranger's hand it's sweaty this is disgusting why am i doing this like right i don't want to be next to this person like they seem fine but like why am i holding hands with the stranger and then feeling that like breakdown more and more and just um, becoming absorbed into this blob. It was just beautiful. And I think that that's what comedy, that's, a, that's like the utopian horizon of comedy for me, is like having these moments of like intense clarification and collectivity and like compassion with other people, you know? Right, because because you're saying you're you're writing blob in the context of the concluding chapter, where you're kind of and I kind of appreciated that you were offering, because so much utopian and uh, you know the this abolitionist stuff, which I say abolitionist because mm-hmm. that's where I tend to read a lot, is um is so well describing our current situation without mm-hmm. you know and and it, and saying we don't know what the future is but it's important to right. spend time talking about even how we don't know but you give some mm-hmm. ways to yeah. em- embody <laughs> a utopian future yeah play is one taking playback taking yeah. playback from capitalism uh-huh and what's sleeping. the other one before blob sleeping sleeping right yes 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 <laughs> just type for sure sleep and then, and then, and then I loved, and this is why I was late to logging onto the Zoom because I see Blob here at the end, and I'm like, well, this is a fucking you're you're telling a joke. Your 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 book ends with a joke, and it's a classic joke because it's a rule yeah. of threes. Um, yes. and and this is the, why I love a comedian reading my book. And the third, <laughs> and the third is a punchline because it's not play sleep. And then some other fucking it's it's play sleep blob. It's not play sleep mm-hmm. uh fucking cook or something. You know what I mean? It's no. uh 
it 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 or eat pray love <laughs> yeah, yeah yeah play <laughs> sleep eat pray love it uh it veers left right and so mm-hmm. i get to this blob section and i'm like i gotta read the fucking blob section before i log on to the zoom and then <laughs> um and and so yeah i i appreciated blob as as in a neb still nebulously defined utopian impulse yeah right that's the best i got i don't have a program for anyone but i do know that we have these moments of contact that comedy can sometimes give us you know and so then knowing that how do we how do we use that (laughs) you know um how do we make that help us with our struggles right and i do think you know, I've experienced blob on the streets with comrades, like I've experienced blob in university occupations, you know, and then, but also through comedy, right? And so I think when I think of those like big, you know, like, yeah, university occupations or whatever, it's great when those can feel like more of an everyday practice, but, you know, usually they're not, they're like these big events, right? And so part of blob is like, bringing that into everyday life more right mm-hmm. and being able to integrate it so that those kinds of like politically revolutionary moments can feel more accessible and not these like spontaneous things that we're just kind of waiting for somebody else to pop up with you know or something like that well and the sense. thing that i yeah it does make sense and, and the thing that i well and it and it's it's destabilizing as a person who still the ideal for me would be to make my entire substance from doing work in comedy um, Mm -hmm. to say, to say let's all provide each other with what comedians provide us is like a, (laughs) you're like, no, (laughs) you know, Um, but uh, yeah. But the other thing I really appreciate on a on a simpler level in terms of the project of the book is a lot of comedians, a lot of artists, musicians, and comedians especially are very anti-critic, just knee-jerk. Mm. And yeah. as someone who's worked in criticism and and grew up reading a lot of like music criticism, especially, mm-hmm. I have a real fond place in my heart for for criticism. And and the so so not only that that it is a piece of criticism that's valuable and clearly now creatively helpful to me thanks to your willingness to programatize it for me um <laughs> but it also is the the and you say this in the book the critique of like a classic fucking i think of it as new york stand up dude mm-hmm. against feminism is their fucking killjoys right and yeah. that you i do love you reclaiming the killjoy but that ultimately what you're doing is also being like listen i'm 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 writing because i care i fuck i like comedy you know it's not this idea <laughs> yes. that like and and i think there are people who engage with comedy in bad faith but that that's not what yeah. you're doing and that you're genuinely like listen dudes because it's mostly dudes complaining i'm i'm here because i fucking love it and because i want more of this feeling that we are getting yeah thank you so much for saying that like i think that was part of what i was saying about like i don't know if i do want to talk to too many comedians because i'm coming at this as like i love comedy i'm a comedy lover i'm a comedy geek Mm -hmm. and that's and i'm a cultural critic but like um that yeah that was the perspective i was coming at it from and um yeah i'm just glad that you saw that i also love criticism um yeah there's and critics are hilarious too like movie critics or you know growing up i mean i grew up we grew up in the 90s there was much better like yeah awesome like movie critics you know yeah (laughs) yeah 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 hilarious figures right and i love that um tradition 
and it's like the last kind of public intellectualism that people seem to accept too right except for comedy i was about to say that the philosophers <laughs> of our time right right, right. i mean not you know <laughs> obviously it's annoying but these fucking <laughs> these motherfuckers are expounding all the time on shit you know they are no no i know and that's something i am still grappling with like i don't know what how do you feel about that that you're you're grappling with are comedians actually philosophers uh just the claim to that in comedy culture yeah what do i think of it who which is like is kind of what i think uh, i'm just like yeah i'm just like i don't know like usually usually questions like that like what is it like to be a woman in comedy like it's like no 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 back up back up Uh, i'm not gonna engage this question even you know what i mean like are comedians modern philosophers like yes and no and shut up and whatever you know like when you talk at the beginning about fucking freud and plato and kant and aristotle talking about the re like plato (laughs) saying that that is humor is evil is just like fuck off dude like this is where the like (laughs) academic shit gets really annoying because it's like yeah it's it it, it, laughing is good full stop i don't care how we Mm. question reality whatever i feel good when i do it and i can do it when it's when i'm not watching someone die you know it's not always schadenfreude so like i just can't entertain this level of disconnection from the mm. the thing that's being the, the actual craft of the thing. Um, I see. Yeah. yeah, I think I I am pretty interested in in the theories of comedy, the specifically domination theory, because that is a specific laughter, and I felt it too. Where you're when you're laughing at somebody, mm-hmm. and then you just feel horrible afterward, much worse than you feel when you're laughing. You're laughing at somebody's expense. Yeah. Or, you know, that's a different kind of laughter. Yeah. That is about domination, right? It's about power. So I guess that here I am talking about power again, but (laughs) sorry. (laughs) No, but um, yeah, I fucking hate Jerry Seinfeld so much. um, And he's always like, he's always like, comedians aren't philosophers. They're comics. Like, Mm -hmm. we're just telling jokes, you know? Mm -hmm. And I'm like. I also don't believe that you fucking asshole. Yeah, like, take no, some for, responsibility for, uh, for this world you're in, and you're ruining absolutely. with your cars. Your coffee yeah, right, 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 right. Like, fuck the you, fucking Taylor Swift of comedians <laughs> putting. Uh, yeah, exactly. Yeah, private jet emissions. It's for for Seinfeld. Yeah. different sobs or whatever. You know, um, exactly. And it, so it's not one or the other, but it is like I'm. It's a, it's a recurring thing I'm trying to figure out how to make sense of, you know, recently. I just feel torn about it, so. Yeah, absolutely. And I got to be honest, normally I would be I'd be looking for a really tidy wrap-up point at this point. <laughs> yeah. Um, but I think I think we already had it in some ways and kept going, but I just Okay. love this shit and 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 just the 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 specific the the book you wrote is too close to the shit i do and care about both both artistically and politically that it's mm-hmm. just it, this there's i think it's only fitting that this conversation end without an ending and just just be <laughs> just an blob. ongoing thing, you know what I mean? <laughs> yeah, just blob. Totally. Just but blob e- it. no, but um, even blob yeah. is a cute little button <laughs> that I'm not going to end on. Oh, I'm going to try to fade <laughs> out us just trailing off, or it's going to be something different than I'm even talking about in this moment right now. But um, Sweet. yeah, man, I, you know, the value. I, I really appreciate um throwing people off their usual spiel, you know, um, especially marginalized people who don't have to constantly talk about their marginalization. Uh, so, mm-hmm. but allowing to be personal in that way. 
Um, but the the criticism you did is is um and are and are still doing is is just too uh too engaging not to include in the personal afterlife podcast, you know. So I really oh. appreciate it. Well, thank you. It really, it's it's been a trip to talk to people who because until like a couple weeks ago it was maybe probably like a dozen people had read the book so i'm yeah. still just kind of like getting over that <laughs> people are reading it yeah and it's just awesome to hear your thoughts especially coming from your perspective and comedy and yeah so thank you it's total pleasure that is the show thank you for listening support by going to patreon by rating in your app support madeline by clicking on the links in the show notes to get her book to follow her on twitter to check out blind field journal and that's what i've got i appreciate you listening and until next week all of you remember you are a mist miracles you can do them have faith, you are human, only human, and human beings they do miracles.